few weeks to get this announcement thing down. Tiago, of course, was in charge of that while he was here. Every now and then I would fill in, but there are a couple of other announcements I thought of. One thing that we are starting to do as of today, when the service begins, all the doors except for this door straight ahead and this door here will be locked for security purposes. So please be mindful of that. And then... What was the other announcement I thought of just a moment ago? There's three. I'll go to number two, uh, three, and maybe I'll come back to number two. Also, we are still in the process of moving everything from Ridgewood. Uh, Saturday, we will try to remove the rest of the things that we need to move out here. So if you're available ch- Saturday morning, please come and help us make that move. Maybe the second one was... Um, We do want to welcome our guests because I did not welcome our guests this morning, and we want to encourage you to stay and have a meal with us after our service. That's the other thing tied into that. Next week, we begin our hospitality meal. Uh, Please check the list to see when you are on that list for hospitality and encourage our visitors to stay for our hospitality meal. That will be for just those that are visitors every other week, so please be mindful of that as well. Hopefully, that covers all of our duties that we have here at the church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for your goodness and grace in allowing us to gather together on this day, the Lord's day, the day that you created and set aside for the very worship of the living God. We know that you have created us for that very purpose, and we thank you, Father, that you have put that in our heart to where there's a desire to worship you in truth and spirit. We come to you, Father, knowing that we are sinners in need of your grace each and every day. And we thank you for the work of Christ and what he has accomplished for us so that we are able to worship you this day. Cause us to be mindful of this great salvation that you have given us. And, Father, to be fruitful in the work that you have called us to do. We pray, Father, that as we study this passage this day, that your Spirit would guide us into all truth. For we know, Father, unless he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear, we will not be able to see or hear. So we pray, Father, that that illumination would take place this day. And, Father, that you would work in our midst, that you would sanctify your children, and that you would save those who are yours Bring them to know Christ as Lord and Savior. We do pray, Father, for those that are not here today. We know that many are not feeling well. We pray that your healing hand would be upon them and that you would restore their health quickly so that they might join us soon in worshiping you. We pray for those who would be away traveling and worshiping elsewhere today, that you would bless their time together with other brothers and sisters in Christ and bring them back safely as well. We also pray, Father, for those who would not be here due to lack of concern for their own spiritual condition. We pray that your spirit would work in their heart and bring conviction so that they would not forsake assembling together the brethren. We pray, Father, that as your word is proclaimed not only here but throughout the world, that many would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, and we would give you all the glory and praise in what you would choose to do. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Mark chapter 12. We'll pick up where we left off last week and we will read verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in a parable. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. And dug a place for the wine vats and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers, and he that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him, and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and him they killed, 
and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last and said, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him out and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief stone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold of him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. A number of years ago, I was hunting down in Monticello on my uncle's property. And as I was going through the woods looking for a deer I thought I had killed, I came upon this old dilapidated house that I never knew was there. And after hunting, I went by my uncle's house and I began to talk to him. And I asked him, I said, Uncle Jack, what is that house back there in the woods? I didn't know it was back there. He said, well, that was my hired hands that lived in that house. And they kept up the farmland for my father and as well for me for a number of years. I guess you could say that was my first meeting of what is called tenant farmers. During the first century, the agricultural system of Galilee had something similar to that. Some landowners, they did not supervise their land. They would turn their land over to others, tenants. They would hire these tenants to live on the land and and to farm the land, to farm the vine. Now, in our passage today, Jesus is given a parable that speaks about this tenant farming. Our Old Testament reading this morning found in Isaiah chapter 5 describes Israel as the special vineyard that God planted. So there is this direct parallel to this passage that we read in the Old Testament to this parable that Jesus gives here in Mark 12. Now Isaiah makes reference to the Old Testament community and their relationship to the Lord. And we see that the vineyard is judged. Now, why are they judged? If you followed along as how read, you saw why they were judged. Because they were fruitless. They had not yielded the proper fruit. And therefore, a strong warning was given to them. Those who claimed to be God's people, they claimed to be the covenant people of God. And God exhorts them through the prophet Isaiah to do what? To bear fruit. Now, as Jesus tells the parable, we see that these tenant farmers are condemned. There in verse 9. Therefore, what will happen to the owner of the vineyard? Well, what's, what will he do? Well, it tells us what he's going to do. We know what he's going to do. He will come and destroy the vine dress and give the vineyard to others. So he reveals the great responsibility and accountability laid on those who claim to be God's people, who claim to be God's covenant people. And this failure to bring forth fruit is directly connected to the failure of the religious leaders who Jesus is speaking to in their lack of teaching and disciplining the people of God. Now we see that these tenant farmers in the parable are condemned. And they're condemned, first of all, for mistreating the servants of the landowner. And then eventually, what do they do? Well, eventually they they kill the owner's son. Now, of course, it's clear to us who these servants are. These servants represent the Old Testament covenant prophets. Those of the ancient leaders rejecting them. We see this in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 4 through 6. Zechariah says, 
Well, let me turn to Zechariah. I'm in Zephaniah. It won't read right if I'm reading from Zephaniah instead of Zechariah. Bible drill is slow today for me. Have you ever gone, there it is, blank on where Zechariah is? Zechariah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they do not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers were, are they, and the prophets do they live forever? Yet surely my word and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dwelt with us. So we see that Zechariah addresses this issue of what they did to the Old Testament prophets. Now, of course, the son of the vineyard is none other than Christ himself. So this parable of the tenants gives us a recap of the Old Testament covenant history of Israel. What happened when God called his people out of Egypt? Well, he carried them to the wilderness, and he carried them to what, children? He carried them to the promised land. Now, what were they to do in the promised land? They were to establish themselves as God's people. And there they would be under God's authority, and God would instruct them by his messengers, his prophets, his kings, his priests. But what did they do? Well, God's people there in the promised land rejected God's prophets, rejected God's priests, did not listen. And God had every right to destroy that nation. But instead, He sent one last messenger, His Son. But He too received with even greater hatred. And we see that the tenants killed Him in the attempt to do what? To possess the land for their self. Now, as Jesus told this parable, he reveals to the religious leaders of that day that he knew exactly what they were seeking to do. He knew their motive. He knew how much they hated him. And we see that the tenants kill him so that they themselves might possess the authority that they had over the people. So this parable not only reveals how much unredeemed people hate God at that particular time, but it also has an application for us, revealing to us how unredeemed people hate God today. I saw this very thing yesterday. Some of you saw it as I put it on GroupMe. There's people that hate God. Go over to the abortion mill one Saturday or one day and you will see people that hate God. You bring up God to them and they'll begin to mock God. They'll begin to laugh about, oh, you believe in God. They will mock you. These are people that hate God. Now, how do we know they hate God? Well, they hate God's children. And they hate the most innocent of all human beings and that's the babies. And they demonstrate that just as you saw the particular woman on the video that I took as she danced and rejoiced as people drove into the abortion mill to murder their children. People continue to hate God. And it's due to not having a new heart. Now, the only reason why we love God is because God has changed our heart. God has given us grace God has blessed us with His salvation. That's the only reason why we are not like them. 
when you go out to a place like that, you actually feel sorry for those people because you know that they're blind to the truth and they hate the truth. And therefore you pray that God would remove the scales from their eyes so that they would understand the truth and repent and leave such a place like that. And many people have. If you've ever met Beverly Millen, she will tell you her story, how she was an abortionist, one of the first abortion clinics here in Jackson, Mississippi. But God did a work in her life. And her and her husband are two of the most strongest. Of course, her husband has passed away now. Advocates for the life that they are. They have allowed many girls to move into their house and she has delivered their children. She has shown love to individuals. People, though, continue, just like these religious leaders, to hate God. On January the 1st, I got my first visit of the year from two Jehovah Witnesses. Have you had your visit from a Jehovah Witness this year? If you haven't, be ready for them because they're out in number seeking to teach people what they believe is truth. And of course, they truly believe that what they are teaching is truth. Otherwise, they would not teach it. And we have to be ready to show them what they're teaching is not truth. It's not in line with the Word of God. Now, I first asked them a question when they ask me a question. They always come with a question. They'll take a particular verse of the Bible that can be translated a little differently. And they took James chapter 1 verse 23 there, or verse 13, I'm sorry, and they had the word trial, and uh, which is better translated tempted. And they said, do you believe that God trials, tries people? And I said, yes, I do. I said, but the word there is tempted, not tried. Because you, so you're misusing the word in that particular context. And they began to ask me more questions. I said, God does try his people. I said, think of Abraham. Abraham was tested. He was tried by God in going to take Isaac to sacrifice him. So God does try us. He has a particular reason for doing that. So in pointing out to them that God does not tempt us, that's the word that you're looking for, not tried. God does not tempt us to sin. That's the work of Satan. Now, anyway, I moved our conversation finally to the sinfulness of man because that's what I wanted to talk to them about, pointing out that all men are sinners and cannot do anything right to please God. And, of course, they wanted to argue me on that particular point. They wanted to argue with me that man has a free will and he has the right to choose right from wrong, has the right to choose anything he wants to do. I said, well, then you're telling me that a man can crawl up on my house and he can choose to fly off my house? So oh, yeah, he can do that. I said, so you're saying me he could fly off that? No, he'll, he'll choose to go off the house, but he won't choose to fly. I said, well, you're missing my whole argument. My argument is that he chooses to fly. Can he choose to fly? Well, no. I said, you're right, because that's against his nature. He doesn't have the nature to fly. And rightly so, he doesn't have the nature to do that which is right. Until God changes his heart, he has no desire to do that which is right and pleasing to God because he's under the power of sin and darkness. And he hates all who seek to trump his will. I said, matter of fact, think about history itself. From Adam all the way to Noah, how many people willingly that gave their life to God and served him? I said, not very many. I said, the majority continued to do what? Continued to live in their sin and they were destroyed in the flood. Of course, they said, well, let's come back another day. They didn't want to continue to talk. And if you want to get rid of Jehovah Witness, just simply teach them something and they won't come back usually. Uh, I did invite them to come back. They haven't come back yet, but we'll see. Now, last week we looked at Jesus' authority over human beings. And when he was challenged by the religious leaders, they asserted their own authority over him, but yet they failed. They could not compare themselves to him in any way. They could not compare themselves to him morally or theologically. He was so much greater than him, them. And they could not even begin to comprehend his greatness. I mean, every time they tried to entrap him, what happened? They failed. 
They had egg on their face. It seems as if they would have given up, but they, of course, never did give up. And now at this particular time, just days before Jesus' crucifixion, he exposes them in this parable. He nails them. I mean, look at what is said there in verse 12 of John, I mean, on Mark chapter 12. And they sought to lay hold of him, but feared the multitude. And they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. See, their very conscience was pierced. A man's conscience can be pierced without repentance, and that's what happened here. Their conscience was pierced by the words of Jesus, and instead of repenting, what did they do? They got angry and they left. They saw that Jesus was their master, even though they didn't bow before him. They saw that he was their judge, but yet they continued to reject him as their master and judge. Now, in this parable, we see three truths that I want us to look at that will help us to understand man's hatred of Jesus Christ, of God, of the gospel, and our need to repent and surrender our all to Christ. First of all, we have the rebellious tenants in the parable. Now, remember, we, we studied the parable of Jesus pertaining to how Jesus gave parables and what the purpose of those parables were all the way back in Mark chapter 4. I don't know how many years ago that was, but hopefully your mind remembers us looking at the parables and what Jesus had to say about the parables and how he used parables. In that particular parable, do you remember Mark chapter 4, what parable that was? Quiz question. Children, I bet you remember, and you can tell mama and dad, right? The sower, remember the sower and the four different soils that he sowed on? Well, Jesus told his disciples about that parable and they asked him a question. They asked him why he preached in parables. And Jesus gave an answer there in Mark chapter 4, but he gives a better answer in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. And he goes into more detail. And Jesus told the disciples that many wouldn't be allowed to know the meaning of the parable, for God the Father had not granted to them the permission to know them. So in other words, he spoke in parables, and he tells them this, that he was speaking in parables to hide the truth from them, so that the crowd did not grasp the spiritual truth. Now, now when you hear that, it sounds unfair, right? Right? We hear that and say, you mean God does not allow them to hear the spiritual truth and understand the spiritual truth? That seems unfair. But we are assuming that if they heard it, if they heard what was spoken in the parable, that they would accept it, right? That's what we're assuming, right? You you follow him here? So before we start saying that's unfair, we need to understand that even if they heard it, they wouldn't receive it. They, They reject it. Now, how do we know that? When did Jesus begin to speak in parables? Not at the very beginning of his ministry. He had already been teaching the people for a long time. And what had they done? They had rejected it. So Jesus says, okay, from now on I'm going to be teaching in parables. You will be able to understand, telling the disciples, but others will not be able to understand. Why? Because they had hardened their heart so long against what Jesus had said. Their desire to follow Jesus was not to hear the spiritual truth. Their desire to hear Jesus was, or follow Jesus was what? To see the miracles or to receive the food. They were saying, what's in it for me physically, not what's in it for me spiritually. So they were rejecting it and they were denying what Jesus was saying. And therefore, he quotes there in Matthew 13 this prophecy of Isaiah. And he says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed. 
lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their heart and turn so that I should heal them. So what we have here is a judicial judgment of God against them for not hearing and for rejecting for so long. So Jesus says, the heart of the people has grown dull there in verse 15. In other words, their eyes had been closed to the truth. Their ears had been stopped up. They had a spiritual heart problem and they didn't even understand it. And it had affected their spiritual vision as well as their spiritual healing. Now Jesus said, But blessed are your eyes, for they see. So he's talking to the disciples. And he says, blessed are your eyes because you're able to see these things. And he goes on. And he says, your ears, for they hear. Do you realize how wonderful the benefit it is for us to see and to hear the gospel? For us to see and hear God's truth. To be able to grasp it and understand it and be able to apply it to your life because the Spirit of God is working in your heart. Now, in verse 13, Jesus says that some hear, but some do not, those some do not understand. And then in verse 14, he read the prophecy of Isaiah, how the people would hear but not understand and how they would see and not perceive. So what did Jesus mean by this hearing and understanding? Well, again, if you look at the parallel passage back in Mark chapter uh, 4, where the parable is of the sower, he says, These are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they heard, Satan comes quickly and takes away the word that was sown in the heart. So these hearers hear the word of the kingdom. They hear the gospel. They hear the teaching of Jesus. And what happens? They don't understand it. It doesn't take root in their heart. They reject it. And what happens? Satan comes and snatches the word from their heart. If the word is snatched away from their heart, if it's snatched away from their mind, they cannot believe and be saved. So the phrase does not understand means that they did not believe and therefore they did not have eternal life. But yet those who did hear and those who did understand with a spiritual heart, they became Christians and they grew spiritually throughout their life and they brought forth much fruit. So we discovered that the crowd did not hear and understand. The multitude did not hear and understand. And those that are referred to did not believe and they were not saved. So we discovered that this crowd, even though they had been listening to Jesus and following Jesus for some time, had already rejected the message that Jesus had taught time and time again. And the fact that they rejected Jesus reinforces what is said there in verse 12. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So Jesus is saying that those who receive His Word, those who receive Him and His Word, they are given more. They will continue to grow in grace. They will have greater understanding. But yet those who reject the message that is preached will fall under God's judgment and they will not see, they will not hear, and they will not understand. Now go back to our main passage. Mark chapter 12. And it begins with these words, Then he began to speak to them in the parable. Now who are the them? Well, the them are the same them there in verse 33 
of chapter 11. And Jesus answered and said to them. Well, you say, well, that doesn't help a whole lot. A them and a them. Well, let's move back further than verse 33 and go all the way back to verse 27. In verse 27, it says, Then they came again to Jesus. Well, the them are the they. And who are the they? Well, it tells us who the they are. And as he was walking to the temple, the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders came to him. So we find out who the them are. The them are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These are the ones that last week we saw challenged Jesus' authority. But Jesus quickly caused them to be speechless in giving them no answer to their question. He wouldn't answer their question, so therefore, or they wouldn't answer his question, so therefore he wouldn't answer their question. But Jesus doesn't let them off the hook that easy. He uses this parable to bring about incitement. And we see that there in verse 12. Because this parable is closely connected to what we looked at a number of weeks ago, and that was the cursing of the fig tree. Remember the sermon on the cursing of the fig tree? If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go and listen to it. But the cursing of the fig tree, why was the fig tree cursed? It did not bear any fruit. Remember, it looked wonderful. It had all these leaves on it, but it did not bear fruit, and Jesus cursed it. And then he taught the disciples a lesson, that there's those that look very good on the inside, but they're fruitless. They're like that fruitless fig tree, and therefore they are cursed. So what Jesus is doing here, he is putting a mirror up in their face. He's causing them to look at who they really are, how wicked they are. And there's no doubt who he's speaking of. They know that he's speaking of the servants, the tenants, as the Old Testament prophets. That their very fathers had persecuted and had killed. And they also know that the beloved son is speaking of him. Matter of fact, it uses the word there in verse 6, his beloved. That word is used of Jesus Christ. He is the beloved son of God. So Jesus confronts them with the fact that he knew their plans. He knew that they intended to destroy him. So what did they do? Well, they got angry, we see. I mean, at this very moment, they would have destroyed him if they could have. But what does the passage tell us? The passage tells us they feared the multitude and they held back. So we see that Jesus is the one that's controlling the situation. He had carefully avoided any needless confrontation with the leaders. And up to this point, but now the time has come and he's exposing their wickedness. Now the second thing that I want you to see is the reaction of the religious leaders. I mean, when is evil is exposed, there's two ways that you can respond to it. One, repent. The other, get angry. The majority of time is the first one, right? Repent. No. <laughs> The majority of the time you confront evil, what happens? People get upset. I've experienced it many times throughout my pastorate of nearly 40 years. I mean, on one occasion, I had a door slammed in my face. On another occasion, I was quickly escorted to the door. On another occasion, I remember a former deacon. He was no longer a deacon, but he was in our meeting. And I remember him taking his fist and striking in his hand. He said, in my younger days... I'm glad it wasn't in his younger days. And I've had people hang up on me. I mean, all that people would be like David when confronted by Nathan about their wickedness. 2 Samuel 12, 13 says, And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. May our hearts be receptive when someone comes to us about our sin 
And we are as brothers and sisters in Christ to go to our brother and sister, as the scripture tells us, if there's aught, and confront them about sin. Now, of course, we better make sure that our own lives are right before we go to someone else. Jesus tells us that. Make sure that you don't have a plank sticking out of your eye and try to take a twig out of your brother's eye. And it must be done in the spirit of love that you're seeking to restore a relationship. But if we are approached or if we approach someone, may God be merciful to bring about repentance and not allow the person to become angry. I mean, you would think that these men would respond rightly to Jesus' teaching. I mean, I mean, if Jesus and His preaching and teaching doesn't bring men to see their sinfulness and their need to repentance, then who in the world can bring someone to repentance? But we see that this isn't the first time that people have responded to Jesus in this way. I mean, at the very beginning of his ministry, when he started his ministry, what did he do? He went into the synagogue, he read the Old Testament scriptures, and he said, today it is fulfilled. And they rejoiced and celebrated. Right? No. You know better than that. They carried him to the edge of the cliff not to see the view for they were going to throw him over the cliff. They hated him. They despised what he had said. He was not welcomed in his own town. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing and they quickly escorted him away. And then in John chapter 6, you remember in John chapter 6, he feeds the multitude. They're all excited because he's fed them. Their stomachs are satisfied and they continue to follow him all the way on the other side of the lake. And then he begins to preach the difficult things. And they have what I call a backdoor revival. They began to leave. And they began to say, these are hard things. How can anyone believe this? Of course, he was talking about how he was from heaven, how he was the manna, and how he was able to satisfy their desires, their hunger, their spiritual desires, and they rejected it. And what happened? All left except for the apostles. And Jesus asked them, will you leave too? And they said, where shall we go, Lord? And then we have the rich young ruler. I mean, if anybody was primed for the picking, I mean, this guy was primed for picking. He comes and he asks the question, Lord, what must I do to be saved? Well, keep the commandments. Well, I've kept all of them. I mean, this guy was the spiritual religious individual, right? I mean, kept all of the commandments? And then Jesus exposed him said, one thing you lack is go sell everything you have and come and follow me. Well, Jesus exposed his heart. He showed him that you hadn't kept any of the commandments. You don't love God. You love yourself. You love your money. And he went away sadly. And then again there in John chapter 6, verse 60, it says, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? These things are hard. Who can accept it? The same response comes today. When you deal with the hard passages in Scripture, just like what we looked at a few moments ago there in Matthew, the prophecy of Isaiah, people look at that and say, man, that's a hard saying. You mean God would do that? You mean God would withdraw His Word? He would withdraw His Spirit from someone? That's exactly what the scripture says. It is. It's a difficult saying. I mean, these men had chosen to harden their heart. But they resolved in their bitterness to rid themselves of Jesus. And this is the path they chose. As pointed out there in the parable. In verses 7 through 9, they chose to kill and destroy and seek to possess the vineyard. And foolishly, they thought that they would emerge untouched. But eventually, Jesus' words would be fulfilled. And the vineyard would be given to others. 
Now, of course, this is one of the points that really angered them. I mean, that the very thought that someone other than the Jews would be given the vineyard, ownership, that was repulsive to a Jew. And one of the reasons why they despised Jesus is because he spent time with sinners. How dare anyone spend time with those uncircumcised Gentiles? How dare anyone spend time with those who had been cast out of the covenant, the Old Testament covenant? And in this parable, Jesus is telling them that the vineyard is actually going to be given to such people Now, some members of the local church today have the same mindset. I mean, that the church is only for those who they approve of. But Scripture teaches us that the church is for redeemed sinners. It's amazing how people who claim to be Christians say, well, I'm not going to that church because of that person. How sad. They're acting just like these religious leaders. Now the final thing that I want you to see is that the stone they rejected is the chief cornerstone. In telling the parable, Jesus draws from uh, Psalms 118, 22 and 23, as he quotes there in verse 10 and 11. And he does this to give the same picture, yet in a slightly different color. See, the psalmist states that one of the stones that was rejected at the site of Solomon's temple, this stone, which had been brought to the site, and they dis- disregarded it as unfit for the temple. But those who rejected it, they didn't realize that this was the perfect stone, that it was perfectly shaped, as the capstone of the porch. So this stone, which the experts, those who thought they knew it all, the religious leaders again is what he's talking about, they rejected it. But yet this stone was the one that held everything together. The entire temple depended upon that one stone, which is called, here in the passage, the cornerstone. Now the parallel is obvious. Jesus Christ, who they despised and who they rejected, was essential to enter into the presence of God. This was God's ordained way. That which man sees as foolish is revealed as God's ordained plan. From the beginning of history, he had ordained that Christ would come, he would be rejected, he would be crucified, but he would rise from the grave and he would be our mediator. Paul states it like this in 1 Corinthians 1.25, because of the foolishness of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We have the same truth found in Isaiah 55, 89. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. For as the heaven are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, God's way are not always our way. There's things that we do not understand, but simply because we do not understand them, we must not reject them. If we do that, then we're acting like these religious leaders. We have to understand that this is God's way. To take that which seems foolish to a man, and therefore God shows that his folly is wiser than the wisdom of man. In other words, if you or I would create a plan of salvation, what would it be based upon? 
merit, right? How good you are. All that you do. That's man's way of salvation. That's man's thinking way of salvation. And that's what all other religions entail. Being good. Meriting salvation. But that's not God's way. God's way is a way of grace. It's not anything that you or I do. It's all what Christ has done. And this parable cannot be confined simply to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And Paul points that out in how he applies it to the church. And the church is largely composed of who? Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Well, he tells us in Romans 11, 19 through 24. We're not going to take time to read it. You can read it on your own. But he tells us that there's branches that are engrafted into the vine. Who are they? Gentiles. You and me were engrafted. And Paul warns the church who is full of Gentiles not to be like the Jewish leaders. Don't be proud. Don't be self-sufficient. But bow in reverence to God. For if God did not spare the natural branch, who's the natural branch? The Jews. If He did not spare the natural branch, do you think He will spare the branch engrafted if they behave like the natural branch? I mean, if they show the same hardness of heart and unbelief, what is their destiny? What Paul's warning to the Gentile believers is to take the revelation of God's character serious. The cutting off of Israel is because of what? Their unbelief. And not because the Gentiles were any way better than the Jews... So Gentile believers should never forget that the gospel came first of all to the Jews and the Jews rejected it. So he's saying, don't behave like the Jews. They that reject the gospel will be rejected. So he engrafted the Gentiles in through the gospel. But if they reject the gospel, then their destiny is the same as the Jews. They are cut off. Cut off from God's mercy. Now God has not left man to himself. God continues to send his servants, just as he did in the old covenant. He continues to send his preachers to preach the gospel, to teach his word, to remind his people of the debt that they owe to God, to lay before them the glorious salvation that He has provided for them. Every single Sunday, this book, God's Word, is to be opened and the riches of God's grace is to be laid before you. I, as pastor... And when Tiago, Pastor Tiago comes back, including him, and Brother Howe, while he's filling in for Tiago, we are to remind you that God is looking for fruit. He's looking for you to bear fruit. And the only way you can bear fruit is if you are connected to Christ. That's very clear in John 15. If you want to hear an excellent sermon series on that, uh, Alistair Beggs began it this morning. I listened to it on my way to church. You can listen to it too at, at 8 o'clock. He starts preaching for 25 minutes. I think he splits his sermon in two because he normally doesn't preach 25 minutes. So they cut it in half and play half one Sunday, the other half the next Sunday. But it's preaching on bearing fruit, that Christians are to bear fruit. Now the fruit is connected with what he says in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit. Now it's the fruit. In other words, all of those things are to be in a Christian's life. So my question to you is, are you fruitful? How much fruit are you bearing? Are you living for Christ? 
Are you carrying his cross? Is it evident? Do people know that you're a child of God? Because your life has radically changed. Your life is different from theirs. Now that doesn't mean you don't ever sin. But do they see that when you do sin, that you seek quickly to repent of your sin and to be restored to fellowship with God? Do they see that if you lose your temper, that you quickly ask for forgiveness? Do they see that when you sin against them, that you're quickly to confess your sin? That's how they know that you're different from everybody else in the office. They see it. It's obvious. And you tell them, I'm not perfect, but I'm growing in grace. And they ought to see that you're growing in grace. I mean, as you look back on 2019, how did you do? It's important that we take inventory to see where we were and where we are. Have we moved forward in our Christian walk? Or are we stagnant? Or have we gone backwards? It's important that we evaluate where we are. Are you more like Christ today than you were a year ago? Do you have a deeper love for Him? Do you have a deeper love for the gospel? A deeper love for the kingdom? A deeper love for God's people? How do you respond to the preaching of the word? Do you welcome it? Do you look forward to gathering together with God's people on His day? To hear the Word of God preached. Do you realize, as as Paul says, all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you accept the Word of God in that way? Or do you respond like the religious leaders? And get angry. How dare he say that? Did somebody tell him about my sin? You know, that's often our thought. When the preacher says something particularly, they say, well, somebody must have told him. No. There's a Holy Spirit that works, see? Holy Spirit that gives your pastor certain things to say. I I don't know what goes on in the majority. I don't even know what hardly goes on in my house, much less anybody else's house. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. She'll tell you. The older I get, the worse it gets too. And Paul also commands preachers, commands me, commands how, commands Tiago, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. That's what I'm commanded to do. And if I do not do that, then I am not faithful. To my task. And sometimes I have to be honest. It's difficult to do. But I must do it. Because that's what I'm called to do as your pastor. And I pray that God would use it. To bring about repentance. That he would use it to bring about salvation. Those here today that are not converted. Do not take what is said in this passage lightly. Do not allow Satan to snatch it away. You are given another opportunity today to respond to the gospel. One of the things that I do is read Spurgeon's morning and evening. And every year as I come to that last one on the 31st, I know what it's going to say. And as I read it, I think to myself, who has rejected the Savior again? Listen to what Spurgeon says. He's using Jeremiah 8:20. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Do you fit in that category? The summer and harvest has ended for another year and you're not saved. Not saved? Dear reader, is this your mournful plight? Warned of the judgment to come, bidden to escape your life, and yet at this very moment not saved? 
You know the way of salvation. You read it in the Bible. You hear it from the pulpit. It is explained to you by friends. And yet you neglect it. And therefore you are not saved. You will be without excuse when the Lord comes to judge the quick and the dead. The Holy Spirit has given more or less a blessing upon the word which has been preached in your hearing. And times of refreshing have come from the divine presence and yet you are without Christ. All these hopeful seasons have come and gone. Your summers and your forests and your harvests have passed and yet you are not saved. Years have followed one another in eternity. And your last year will soon be here. Youth is gone. Manhood is going. And yet you are not saved. Let me ask you, will you ever be saved? Is there any likelihood of it? Already the most propitious season have left you unsaved. Will others' occasions alter your condition? Means have failed with you. The best means used preservingly and with the utmost affection. What more can be done for you? Affliction and prosperity have alike failed to impress you. Tears and prayers and sermons have been wasted on a barren heart. Or not the probability dead against your ever being saved? Is it not more than likely that you will abide as you are till death forever bar the door of hope? Do you recall for the supposition? Yet it is most reasonable one. He who is not washed in so many waters will all probably go filthy to the, the end. The convenient time never has come. Why it never come? It is logical to fear that it might not arrive. Like Phoenix, you will find no convenient season till you are in hell. Oh, bethink you of what that hell is. And of the dread probability that you will soon be cast into it? Reader, suppose you should die unsaved. Your doom no word can picture. Write out your dread escape in tears and blood. Talk of it with groan and gnashing of teeth. You will be punished with everlasting destruction from the glory of the Lord and from the glory of His power. A brother's voice would faint, startle you into earnestness. Oh, be wise. Be wise in time and ere another year being. Believe in Jesus who is able to save to the utmost. Consecrate the last hour to lonely thoughts. And if deep repentance be bred in you, it will be well. And if it leads to a humble faith in Jesus... It will be best of all. Oh, see to it that this year pass not away and you an unforgiven spirit. Let not New Year's midnight appeal sound upon a joyless spirit. Now, now, now believe and live. Father, how we pray that your spirit would move upon our hearts this day and that he would renew us 
as only he can, so that we have a deeper love for thee, a deeper love for Christ, a deeper love for the gospel, a deeper love for the souls of men. How we pray, Father, for those who are lost, that they would heed this appeal, that today would be the day of salvation. And this we pray in the glorious name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen.